Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending August 27. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up, you're going to hear Radiothon Chat with Geraldine Hickey because it is Radiothon time. Uh, She drops in to remind us all why we should subscribe and support the station and tell us what she's been up to as well. Uh, Michael Warner also pops in to talk about The Boys Club, Power Politics and the AFL, his new book. And we have a chat about wagging school back in the day. Who used to do it and who didn't? Uh, and in brass text, we talk to Anthony Lowenstein about the news unfolding in Afghanistan. For weird science, Dr Jen walked us through brain fog during lockdown. And it's swooping season. Watch out. Melbourne's own Triple R. We've got a bit of a guest here. Oh, we welcome back onto the breakfast as an airwaves Triple R hero, hero and now Perth-based comedian Geraldine Hickey. <laughs> <laughs> From the land of freedom, walking about, no mask. Hey, I've got to say, just quickly, that um, um, donation was a typo. I accidentally put on an extra zero. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. It's real. It's going well. So, it's going um, well. Yeah, apparently. People want to know how, how you are, what it's been like since you've departed can I tell you that that first Monday morning after I'd finished, it was a, I know it was a public holiday, but I still woke up at four a.m. and lay in bed, just looking at the ceiling, going, "What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> what is my life now? I don't know. Who am I? Who am I? Who? Are, what are you going to do? Do you have a reason to get up? What are you going to do today? It was really." It was really something else. Um, but I've got to tell you, like, going um, going the first lockdown that we went back into, I was like, oh, I'm happy to stay in bed. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy to stay in bed. And, like, it was so – it's been so nice listening to you guys. I kind of – you know, I think not long after I finished, I, we were filming Metrosexual – and so I had like, you know, 6 a.m. call times and stuff. So I'd, you know, be up early and be driving in to set and I'd tune in and i go, Jesus is a great show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what a great show. I loved it. It was just like, oh, and, you know, but I'm like, oh, he's probably got another great story. He's like, oh, this is terrific. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like, oh, I'm this banging tune. Hello, I love this. I've been um, driving around um, my uh, brother-in-law's car and I don't know how to change the station. So it's just set on um, – on like one of the commercial stations and I've driven it like, you know, four or five times um, and for like 10, 20 minutes at a time and I reckon I've heard five songs. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I turn the car, I'm like, I heard this yesterday. Same time yesterday. Come on. Come on, you know. Exactly. So, I, anyway, what a great show. You guys are doing a terrific job. Oh, thanks, Jess. It's really nice to know. Is it, what do you, how do you reflect on your five years? Do you feel... Uh, you know, the, what you've observed, what's it like to be out of it? I know that you're listening and you're loving it, uh, but what's the what does the culture mean and has it stayed with you? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100% stayed. Like I try and think, um, you know, how much it was in my life before, which is probably not a lot mm. and compared to now and it's just I um, – 
wouldn't know half the shit that's going on in this city if it wasn't for this station. Mm. And also, uh, like, uh, when I reflect on my last, you know, uh, all the time that I was on the station, it's it's a direct correlation between how successful I was in my career as a comedian. Um, like, 100% I would not have won – so, yeah, did I win the award for most outstanding show at this year's comedy festival? Yes. Could <laughs> <laughs> I have done that without Triple R? I don't think so. Not at all. Like it's, um, it just put me in connection with so many people and it just made me grow a lot um, as a comedian. And the opportunity just to be able to, you know, get on air and just tell my little cooked stories was just um yeah, a real gift, and it's and I think that's what I miss the most. Like I've just been, I just want to talk. <laughs> yeah, I just want to go. Oh, just this silly little thing happened, and I, I'm still like it's a, every day. I'm still thinking, you know. Oh, I could talk about that on. Oh no, I'll just have to. People just have to wait and watch it on stage. I I reckon you're one of the best examples of making it look and sound easy. Can you talk about the role of Triple R in the last two years and you as an example of all the presenters across the grid, what it takes to prepare and deliver a show in these circumstances? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's... Doing radio last year, like, and it's so great that you're all in the same room. What a what an absolute joy that yeah. is, because it was, you know, last year it was ten months of us all sitting at home in our rooms, and I still think about that all the time and how, and it's hard to tell people how difficult that was, how um, being disconnected. Um, just that that feeling of like when the show had finished and you just click your computer off and just kind of your shoulders would slump. <laughs> go, oh, all right, off to to do something else. And it was, but those three hours that we were on air together was uh, a real joy. And also, like I tell people, I try and explain it to people, and I go, and they go, oh yeah, that oh my god, that sounds that sounds really hard. And then you add the little the little bit of pepper at the end and you go, also, we couldn't hear the music. <laughs> <laughs> lose their minds. Um, so and it's so it's and you know, and this is just us, so like you know, who knows what other the lengths that other presenters go to to you know, to put their shows together and put it on air. It's just like oh, physically, yes, amazing stuff, but also just mentally taking on that role of like every morning, you know, we wake up and you think, what do people want to hear? What do people want to hear? It's like navigating every the whole state's emotions mm. of going. Do they do they want to be informed about what's going on, or do they want to forget about everything? And it's like the answer is yes to both of those questions. And it's <laughs> try, mentally trying to navigate that um, was a real strain. Um, and geez, we did a fucking good job. Yeah, yeah. beautifully said. And you still are. And you're, still, and you're doing it again and again and again. And it's like we went through that last year and we're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe we did that. And now we're doing it again. Mm. Like, well, you are. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we're living it up in WA. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, do what Jez did. Uh, subscribe. RRR.org.au. What do you What do you have to say to uh, people who are on the fence? Oh, mate, people on the fence, what are you even doing? Do you know how easy it is to subscribe? Do you know how I did it? I was listening on the app on my phone and there's a little button down the bottom that says subscribe now. I'm like, yeah, I'll subscribe now. <laughs> also, realised I didn't have the automatic renewal. Click that. Oh. Yeah. Put that up there, no problem. Um, also, I, you subscribe because it's – you know how, you know, you've been listening to this station and go, oh, this is pretty cool. Um, I really like this. Subscribe because it's your station. Like the, it's written there. Like, and you know how much joy it gives you to like send an email to the session and you can start it with as a subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that unless you subscribe. And it's like I listen. Um, I think since my favourite um, time to listen is this time. Is at six forty-five the media segment because I'll tune in if if it. If I'm not sure how the day is going to go, like in terms of what's happening in the world, I'll listen in. And if Daniel doesn't talk about COVID, then I'm like, oh, it's going to be a good day. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to worry. Like it it puts my, like, what do do I really need to worry about this? And I'm like, nah, there's a dog that's fallen down a well in (laughs) So it's great, you know. Put, puts everything into perspective and it's it's really nice. And so if you want to reward that and also subscribe because everyone at this station is doing an amazing job um, and you all know it because you listen every day. So it's your station. Just pay for it, mate. Oh, oh you're oh, a Hickey. 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 Couldn't have said it any better ourselves. You should uh, be break faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, mate. Thanks for your time, your donations. We miss you. Yep. I'd say be safe in WA, but it seems like that's the safest place in the world right now. So look after Don't yourself. Don't know it. Man, what a, what a pet. Anyway, they're great. <laughs> Enjoy the grand final when it's there. <laughs> yeah. Triple R. Investigative journalist Michael Warner is the recipient of multiple Melbourne Press Club Quill Awards, an Australian Sports Commission Award for his football saga coverage and the Alf Brown Award as the Australian Football Media Association's most outstanding performer. His new book is The Boys Club, Power, Politics and the AFL. And to tell us about it, the journalist and broadcaster joins us now. Michael, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Um, you're right of COVID-19 wiping two decades of smugness off the AFL administration's face. Can you break that smugness down for us? <laughs> well, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> well, the um, the AFL, I suppose, its own world governing body of its sports. So unlike cricket in Australia or rugby league, there is no higher authority. And so I suppose over a period of two decades, um, coinciding with the arrival of Andrew Demetriou um, at the turn of the century and then and replaced by his successor, uh, Gillian McLaughlin. I felt that the AFL has grown into such a powerful, uh, wealthy organisation that its behaviour started to um, become unchecked, unaccountable. And I say that this is a system in desperate need of reform. So I suppose when COVID came along, um, and like so many businesses, they weren't alone, the AFL, of course, in having the uh, devastating shutdown of revenues, but I think it exposed the, the, the size of the competition. For example, there were 795 staff that emerged 
which is almost one for every player, which is quite obscene. So I think that's what I meant by saying that um, COVID caught up with the AFL. Mm. And what about the AFL Integrity Commission investigating some of the scandals, if you could touch on some of those scandals, and the, maybe the oxymoronic nature of the Integrity Commission? Yeah, so they have an integrity unit, um, which I say is quite ironic because if you have a look at a, a number of the, the scandals and all your listeners would fondly remember all of them, uh, maybe fondly is not the right word, but, you know, Carlton mm. salary cap scandal was the first time the AFL integrity unit really flexed its muscle. And in that instance, they did the right thing because Carlton was um, cheating the salary cap and was rightfully um, punished for that. Although if you look at the way that they went about it, that was questionable. Then you look at the West Coast Eagles' illicit drugs crisis. A lot of that was swept under the carpet. They became to be more of a brand protection uh, organisation rather than actually getting to the heart of integrity. Of course, we had the Melbourne tanking saga, which is just uh, a debacle. The Essendon drug saga, which is the big daddy of them all. Everyone would know it raged for five years. started off as you know, being Essendon's fault but for going into a, a shambolic injections program. But in the bid to um, come to a preferred outcome, I think the AFL blew the whole game apart and that went on for five years. And there's been others since, the, the Talia brothers um, sharing of information. So I say that the, the AFL integrity, um, commitment to integrity, their system there needs reform. They're judge, jury, executioner. And more often than not, they put the commercial interests ahead of the actual truth of the matter. And again, that's another area of reform. In, in your book, you mentioned, um, you know, obviously the AFL are making a significant amount of money and a lot of that comes from the gambling industry. Uh, so many of the clubs are trying to steer clear of gambling within their football clubs. It just makes so much money. Do you think that the AFL will ever steer clear of gambling as their major sponsors? Well, the hypocrisy of the AFL there is that they've encouraged all the clubs to get out of the poker machines. Richard Goiter, the AFL Commission chairman, said when he arrived, replacing Mike Fitzpatrick, that he hated poker machines. And that's fine. And I, I don't like pokies either. And it was good to see a lot of clubs get out of them. Yet, on the other hand, the AFL makes about $10 million a year alone from one single corporate bookmaker, sports betting bookmaker. Um, and as Bruce Matheson said, the pokey poker machine king who um, a lot of the clubs have their pokies with him so what they're saying is gin's okay but scotch is banned and it is just ridiculous and so you've got that aspect of it then you've got the aspect of all of these betting uh, investigations so the Melbourne tanking saga where the game was lost that was actually to be investigated by the Victorian casino and gambling regulator it should have been properly investigated because People were betting on those matches, and as it turns out, Melbourne uh, was proven in the transcripts that emerged many years later. We're not trying to win those matches. So anyone who had a bet on that game, uh, thinking that Melbourne were going to win, they weren't. And that, now that's a, that's in breach of the of their um, responsibilities uh, as a um, as a licensed gambling entity, the AFL. But it wasn't properly investigated. Now we saw with the inquiry into Crown Casino in New South Wales. It took a New South Wales regulator to expose the things that were going on at Melbourne's Crown Casino. We all know what the result of that is. And imagine if the New South Wales regulator had a look into some of the things that were going on at the AFL, they would have come up with some different answers as well. But Melbourne is a very sycophantic bubble when it comes to the AFL. And um, time and time again, the, uh, these sorts of matters have been washed over. 
So there's been this joke running recently through the pandemic that if you want to know if we're going to go into a lockdown, see what the AFL's doing because they seem to get the word first. Uh, and this idea that they're an extremely powerful institution comes across in the book in many ways. The chapter that you write on the Essendon saga is kind of jaw-dropping, to be honest. It's hard to believe that it played out the way that it did and that a lot of the uh, people who were involved in that are still around, um, except for Demetrio. What is it? What does the Essendon saga and what happened to James Hurd tell us about the political power and the power of the AFL as an institution? Well, as John Carr had the great pleasure to interview John Kane um, not long before um, he's his passing and uh you know john had seen it all uh, as a premier of this state and he said that in his time he'd never known a, a more powerful entity in the state of victoria than the afl which is incredible when you think it started out as a fledgling you know state body and it became this behemoth um australian corporation you know matching kpis it sort of came to see itself as a as a major institution, corporation in Australia. And I suppose the Essendon saga was the ultimate test for the AFL. And if you look at the way that they were able to swing into action almost immediately after um, being notified that there was a problem at Essendon and also at Gold Coast, um, which again was swept under the carpet, but their, their own club, Gold Coast. So I think the Essendon saga is a sort of prism into the into the system, the strategic capabilities of the AFL. I mean, these guys are very seriously smart and they they, they start with a preferred outcome. And in the instance of Essendon, it was, OK, we can't have those 42 players missing two years. Uh, that would blow up our whole game. So what's the alternative? And that became um, James Hurd, it became Mark Thompson, it became Dr Bruce Reid and blaming the officials, which is fine because certainly the club had to take some responsibility. But in a doping case, it's about the athletes, and so it was, it was completely inappropriate the way that the AFL and ASADA were, were doing deals, certainly in the early days. And in the end, everyone went down anyway because the players were suspended. Speaking to the boys' club of the title, in addition for jobs for mates, I suppose, one theme you explore is the thin skin associated with criticism and the, the blackballing of critics. Can you discuss that for us? Yeah, that's right. I mean, with, with that that wealth and power comes hubris doesn't it and uh, personal animus and and so I discovered myself you know that if you you can't like I spent my first 12 years of my career at the other end of the paper you know doing state politics and crime and that that sort of thing so when you go around to sport and write full-time on the politics of football it, it struck me straight away this sort of don't rock the boat, don't be an enemy of the state. And it's a, there's a real sort of pressure on on reporters. I, one of the things that concerns me the most, and the boys' club that I talk about, it's not just the, the suits at AFL House, it's the system. It's the player agents and the lawyers and the, high, and the senior journalists who are all part of this system. Some don't even really realise that they are a part of it. Um, you know, they're very clever in manipulating journalists. Uh, they certainly leak they get things out on their terms. Um, and so I think, you know, people like Chip Legrand, for example, who who, who was a, the, the journalist at The Australian and now at The Age, who wasn't from the football beat, but who went in and, and, and covered the Essendon saga. He found out for himself um, how nasty they can be. And that, unfortunately, is the system. And another reason I say there should be some reform and that the club president should rise up 
and they should demand a review, an independent review of the AFL's governance structures because we haven't had one for 30 years. So where does this put you? Do you know whether Gill uh, has read the book or whether the AFL Commission has read the book and, and where this puts you in uh, uh, favour or or not in favour with them? <laughs> I wouldn't be in favour, but I, I heard Richard Goiter, the Commission Chairman, who... Look, the, the interesting thing about the AFL is that the commission that was set up in the 80s to sort of oversee the game has actually become almost in, irrelevant in terms of the power. The power is with the executive at Docklands. That's where the decision-making is, and the commissioners that sit above are almost just sort of ticking boxes, and they've lost their their oversight or will to intervene. Uh, but I heard Richard Goiter say, who, by the way, you know, he's the chairman of the AFL, he's chairman of Qantas, he's chairman of uh, another major corporation. Um, I think that he should be, that the AFL commission chairman shouldn't have his hands full to that extent. But he was asked about the book and said that he hadn't read it because he didn't respect it. So um, interesting that you don't respect something you haven't read. But I think if he was to read it, he would find that some very, very respected people like Richard Collis, um, Graham Samuel, um, the list goes on and on, uh, as I mentioned, John Kane, people have, have said um, that the system is in desperate need of reform and have talked about different aspects of it. So, um, that, But that didn't surprise me from the AFL. They're an extremely arrogant organisation. Just quickly, um, Don Pike recently pulled out of the Magpies' top job uh, running. Uh, he wants to stick with being an assistant coach. Does that surprise you at all? Obviously, uh, reading this book, people like Dean Bailey, James Hurd have been used as scapegoats. It's a little bit scary being a head coach of an AFL club these days. Yeah, well, Don Pike said when he left Adelaide that the pressures was was too intense. I mean, that, to me, that's a different aspect. That's that's a global thing, you know, the pressure with social media, et cetera, on coaches. I'm more sort of talking about governance here and I, I think they're slightly separate issues, but certainly I think Don Pike um, was of the view that it's too much of a pressure cook. You've got to be a special type of person to be a coach and take all that pressure on board. Chris Scott said he didn't want his twin brother Brad to get back into coaching because it's not a good job. And just finally, what about the idea that the scoreboard doesn't lie, it's the nation's biggest and richest sport, uh, it's persevered in stage of competition during a pandemic, you know, the ends justifies the means? Yeah, I say that's right. There are two scoreboards, though, at play. And on one, the AFL, you cannot fault them. A national competition across five states, 18 teams, heaps of money. Uh, it's a great product, even though there's a few things about the game that annoy the hell out of fans. It, it is a magnificent product. I mean, I love the game. I love the Tigers. I played the game. But what I say is there's another scoreboard, and on that one there are about 25 goals down, and that's about transparency. It's about accountability. It's about integrity, the way you treat people. And they are very important aspects, probably more important than how much money you make. And so I say that that's the area that, that we must have some change, and that's the area that they just simply don't think that they need to change. But I reckon if you read the book and you see the amount of people who've been damaged amount of compromised investigations, et cetera, et cetera, secret salaries, I could go on. Um, I think it's pretty obvious what needs to happen. The book is The Boys Club, Power, Politics and the AFL. It's out via Hachette and we've been speaking with author Michael Warner. Thanks very much, Michael. Anytime. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. 
I think uh, one of the things, obviously, all the kids being homeschooled at the moment, one of the things that'd be challenging would be for the kids to uh, to wag school. Um, oh yeah, right. It's been removed from them. The it's... right of wagging. <laughs> What, I was such a goody two-shoes. I, I could never wag. I, I wagged once and it was the most anxious, worst half hour of my life. I couldn't even do the full class. Like, I, I was I was horrible. Have you you guys wagged school? We had a system in our high school where you could sign yourself out once you got to a certain age and then sign yourself in again. And um, I knew the, the lady at the front office and she used to just kind of not ask me she used to just give me a little kind of knowing nod. I think she just knew that I was signing out to go to Seven Eleven and get a Slurpee and then come back. So you just go by yourself? No, I'm with mates. Ah, yeah. and would you all sign out? So you all no. One of us would sign out, so it seemed less obvious, and then <laughs> uh, and then uh, then others would kind of you know sneak out the back way or whatever. But um, I think once you're in year eleven and twelve, because you get we got free, free periods. periods. It yeah. became it was more like leaving the school grounds than fully wagging. I guess yeah, right. It wasn't a proper wag. No, no. Um, you... oh, I wagged. I mean. I wagged and then we went to a mate's house. And, Did you? And there was a talkback topic with Jason Dunstall and Dougie Hawkins. Of, <laughs> when have you wagged school? So we called up. No, get out. <laughs> and they said, we're wagging now. <laughs> and then it got back to the school, obviously. <gasps> oh. And so there was a big assembly. And then they think they found the person who did it. And uh, it wasn't me. I mean, it was me, but, but I they, got away with it. How so your radio some, career? Did they, some other guy got some other kid got suspended? Did they? Okay, Daniel, they've got so many questions. Number one, did they play your voice over the speaker or something to work out who it was? No, they didn't. They should have. I, I guess I may, I did put an inflection on just to disguise myself a little bit. And you didn't feel any guilt that some kid got suspended? For no that. way, because it's, it's kind of like uh, when, you know, an actor wins a an Oscar for a role that they should have won it for the previous film. Oh, yeah. Where this, this kid was a rat bag oh, and so. a monster. <laughs> and so okay. I was it's fine that he took the rat. It's a real leap from rat bag to monster. But I'm glad <laughs> you made it. I monster back. Okay. He was a rat bag. Um, I, I, this is the one and only time that I, I wagged was we, uh, our school was next door to a swimming pool and we were going across to swim and a bunch of mates are like, let's just go to the park. I was like, all right. <laughs> so we went across to what the park. What year are we talking? Are uh, you 10? Okay. So walked across to the park and then like just not doing anything, just hanging out. I was like, should we? Should we go back? Like, they probably know we're missing now. I was the annoying little goody two shoes, and they're like, just chill out, Bobby. Like, haven't you ever wagged before? I'm like, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just couldn't, it was, I was so anxious, and they, I think they were just laughing at the fact that I was so uncomfortable. And then I just said, I've got to go. <gasps> I'm leaving. And I went back. Anyway, no one noticed that we weren't there. The other girls just hung out. I think they just went back to school after swimming had finished, but no one even noticed. Um, we had this protest at school one day. I don't even remember what the protest was about, but it was at lunchtime and everyone obviously just wanted to extend their lunchtime. So everyone just stayed on the oval and started protesting. And the class that I had next was PE and the teachers are coming out like, going, guys, just get back to class. And it was like, hell no, we won't go for whatever we were protesting. And then I remember the PE teacher come out and he's gone, Bobby, Bobby McCumber. We're playing indoor cricket today. Come on. <laughs> so I went, all right. <laughs> oh, you scab. And then I left. And then oh, a couple dear. of the I know. I was. Crossed the picket line. Oh, my God. Just, just playing cricket. cricket. <laughs> I know. It was sport. 
sport and I loved it. But I was <laughs> sport and I loved it. You know what my brother used to do? My younger brother, and I didn't realise this until years later. Um, so we lived in the country and he would walk out the door uh, to go catch the bus and then climb up on top of the roof and sit on the roof and smoke cigarettes all day and not go to school, like the entire day. On the roof of the bus? On the roof no, of the bus. Daniel. No, on the roof of the school. Sorry, on the no no no, sorry, on the roof of the house. So he would walk out the door. Oh my god. And then he would we had and so the roof was like um we had uh renovations, so you could sit in the middle of the roof and you couldn't see from the outside. Yeah. But why were, wouldn't he do something more interesting than sitting by himself smoking ciggies? I don't know. Maybe if he went on the bus there was more chance of I don't know, getting caught or walking away and yeah, imagine was, clean, cleaning the gutters in the future. Like, what yeah, the hell's what been going that? on up here? I just <laughs> can imagine your mum home or your dad home being like smelling ciggies yes. all day and thinking something was up. Yes, like am I something wrong with my brain? I smoke cigarette, <laughs> cigarette smoke all day. I think mum used to kind of walk around and like, where the hell is that coming from? And he, yeah, that was, I was um, I was really good at faking other people's handwriting because I don't really ah. have. I have a, a very my handwriting is very fluid. And so I used to do all the notes for everyone to wag. Did you? Yeah, because so it looked do, adult. So it looked it looked adult, and I was just good at faking other people's handwriting and signatures. So that became kind of my thing for a while. Was I'd write notes for girls to to be able to fake wag. Um, <laughs> but I remember my mum once catching. I'd been practicing her signature. I don't know why. Because uh, I never, I never used, I never forged hers. She was too smart. Like, there's no way I'd get away with with my mum doing a fake letter to the school. And she was yeah. up there a lot, and like, I'd just get busted. But I was just practicing her signature because I like to practice my forging. And um, she must have found this piece of paper with her signature on it fifty times over. <laughs> and it just, I, I came home from school, and she just had spread it out on my bed. And just left it there, no oh. comment. Like like a classic mum mic drop. Mm. The, I'm just going to leave this here to let you know that I know <laughs> that you're trying to wag school and you're being bad, but I'm not going to say anything about it. It was her, like her number one move was just the silent, I'll leave that there. I was just testing the ink in the pens. And yeah, I love I you so much, mum. I just love writing your name over and over and over. Triple <laughs> R. Here to talk developments in Afghanistan following the 20-year occupation and recent takeover by the Taliban, we're joined for Brass Tax this week by author, independent journalist and filmmaker who has reported on the Afghanistan war over the last decade, Annie Lowenstein. Welcome back to Breakfasters. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Surviving down there? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. in Sydney, so we're, it's a bit ish up here Exactly. Too, yeah, surviving ish. Uh, what, a, what a nightmare in Afghanistan. Yeah. Look, it's a nightmare, and on one level, the real shock, I guess, has been the speed with which the Taliban took over, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have had those, heard those conversations, so I don't want to belabor that. I think many of us who have both reported from there, spent time there, know a lot of Afghans, um, were not surprised that the Taliban were likely to take over. The speed with which it happened was definitely surprising. And I think one of the problems with so much of the analysis in the last week has been somehow saying the US and therefore its allies, including Australia, and of course Australia always played a very minor role there, but I'll get to that in a minute, botched the withdrawal and therefore now we're seeing the catastrophe unfolding across Afghanistan, Kabul airport, 
for example, I have a number of Afghan friends and colleagues, some of whom may be able to get um, visas out, either with the Australians or others, but literally can't get access to the airport, so are essentially trapped in Kabul indefinitely. And it's clear that the US and others won't be flying people out indefinitely. At some point, they're probably going to say, we're done. I don't know when that's going to be, in a week, in a month or whatever. So unless that situation resolves, many of them are, are pretty desperate. And look, for good reason. Um, having spent time in Afghanistan for uh, over the last decade, people have long memories. Afghanistan has been at war for over 40 years. Virtually every outside power from the US to Pakistan to India to China have meddled in that country. And the Taliban ruled for five years between 96 and 2001, and it was brutal. Women, girls didn't have education. All that is true. But what is ignored in so much of the coverage is what do people think were happening in the last 20 years? Yes, it's true in some parts of Afghanistan, particularly in the cities, Kabul and elsewhere, girls and women did get educated. That's true, and that's a wonderful thing and should be celebrated. But so much of the U.S. and Western-backed occupation was surviving on the fact that we were paying, and we, I'm talking about Australians here too, were paying warlords in various areas, particularly the areas that Australia occupied, to so-called maintain the peace, to supposedly back local militias and others to not kill our own troops, although, of course, 41 of our troops were killed nonetheless. And I say that because a lot of Afghans who you speak to, and I have Afghan friends both in Afghanistan and elsewhere, Many of them are scared of the current reality. I'm not minimizing that for a second. But they also say that the reality of much of the last 20 years, especially if you're not living in a capital city, didn't change very much, didn't change very much from before 2001. And a lot of the forces that we in the West empowered there were the brutal warlords who have a long history of incredible um, hate and anger towards Afghan civilians. So it's been pretty rich watching so many in the in the Western media, including here, in my view, having crocodile tears over the war, where, A, where the hell have you been for most of the last 20 years? And many of the ones who were there, and not all, but many in the media, were very happy to go over there with Australian troops, embed in with those troops and report the war's going wonderfully well. It's our brave boys doing glorious work. And just let me finish on this point. Last week on Q&A, there was on ABC TV, there was an entire hour just on Afghanistan. Now, the show doesn't regularly have an entire hour on one issue. They had a veteran. They had um, an Afghan-Australian. They had some other speakers, Bob Carr, former foreign minister. Do you think they once mentioned the fact that Australia – Australian forces are accused of committing gross human rights abuses. How do you talk about a war for an hour and not mention the fact that Australia is accused of killing at least 39 Afghan civilians? And my understanding is from my sources, almost certainly more. That's the kind of myopia we're talking about here. And I think it's an incredibly frustrating reality that we somehow think that the Afghan war happened 20 years ago and then disappeared for 20 years. And then a week ago, it suddenly exploded again. Mm. The invasion was uh, rather optimistically called Operation Enduring Freedom. What, what do you think should have happened going back to 2001? Uh, was it justified? Should we have gone in and got out quickly? How do you think history should have uh, unfolded in opposition to the way it's done now? Look, the way the war happened in 2001, I'm old enough to remember that virtually across the political spectrum, and there were some 
um, dissenting voices, to be sure, advocated going in. This is includes many on the left, I might add. There was a quite there were leftists, including myself, in fact, who opposed the war, and I'll get to that in a second. But there was a general view that uh, Al Qaeda attacked the US on 9/11. Al Qaeda was giving um, base in Afghanistan. The Taliban were housing the um, Al Qaeda. They therefore needed to be eradicated, and Al Qaeda was undoubtedly a threat. One of the really unknown questions which remain to this day is the Taliban offered in late 2001 a deal to give up Osama bin Laden and the idea that America would not invade in its Western allies. The Bush administration rejected that entirely and launched a brutal war for the next 20 years. Look, you know, a lot of Afghans I speak to, both here in Afghanistan, did support the war. It's hard to sort of say every Afghan did, because of course they didn't. They were definitely dissenting Afghan voices who opposed the war, to be sure. But a lot of Afghans felt that their country was in such dire straits that maybe, maybe an alternative non-Taliban government would be better. And as I said, if you're a young Afghan woman, if you're a young Afghan girl living in Kabul, not minimizing at all what's happened in the last 20 years. There's been a lot of ugliness and brutality. Your life is undoubtedly better than it would have been had the Taliban stayed in power. One needs to acknowledge that. That's true. But the problem is that for so much of the 20 years in a lot of other parts of Afghanistan, as I said before, the country has been deeply remains the same. Afghanistan is now the world's biggest producer of opium, heroin, mostly comes from Afghanistan. Um, that's only going to get worse probably now. I suspect the Taliban are back in control. There is, I think, very much a narrative that was started right from the beginning, which continues in the last week, that we in the West went in there to save Afghan girls, that we went in there to save Afghan women, that somehow it's a noble imperial effort to go in there and help Afghan women. Well, firstly, I think that's deeply a, a deeply racist idea. I'm not suggesting one shouldn't want to help Afghan women, for sure. But we have to ask ourselves, after spending, the US at least, has spent two trillion US dollars in the country. Australia has spent tens of millions of dollars. There have been thousands of uh, Western forces killed. We probably think at least 140,000 Afghan civilians dead in the last 20 years. A mass exodus of Afghan refugees in the last five years. I suspect there'd be far more. Australia has taken remarkably few Afghan refugees. And in fact, even in the last week, the Australian government, Scott Morrison, Peter Dutton and others have made it pretty clear that we're not going to take very many people. Um, the people here who are on temporary protection visas, Afghans are going to remain in limbo, despite the fact that no one would seriously suggest that we should be sending Afghans back to Afghanistan. I should add that there's been a number of Afghans that many Western countries have sent back to Afghanistan in the last 10 years, some of whom were killed when they got back. I'm working on a project at the moment um, around the Afghan 20-year anniversary, which comes in early October. Of course, when we started working on this two years ago, no one knew the Taliban were going to take over so quickly. And we're working with a range of artists, both here and overseas, to try to give a, an assessment of the legacy of the war. And yes, there are definitely some Afghans you speak to who don't necessarily welcome U.S. forces, but to be sure, their lives got better. To me, it is a really unknown question about what would have happened had the U.S. not gone in there in 2001. And to me, 
there is this really, to me, dangerous strain in thinking, and on some parts of the left as well, though much stronger on the right, that the US military can be a, somehow a civilizing force. And if anyone knows anything about history in the last 50 years, I mean, the US basically has lost every insurgent war it's fought. It's lost every single one, Vietnam, Iraq, uh, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, every single one. And yet still we have a situation in much of the commentary in Australia and elsewhere, if only the US had stayed a bit longer. To do what exactly? What are we staying for? Are we propping up an incredibly corrupt Afghan government? And we saw the effect of what that corruption does when, when the Taliban were moving across the country in the last couple of months. In city after city, area after area, many Afghan forces simply didn't fight because they didn't believe in the government that was supported by the West. There was no will to fight for a corrupt regime. So if you believe, and I'm not saying you guys, but if people believe that the US should stay there forever, indefinitely, to achieve what exactly? And that, to me, I think is a question that many people don't want to answer, unless they believe in indefinite occupation, which I suspect a lot of people secretly do. Mm. And what do you think the effect will be on US, what they term prestige, I suppose, and, you know, it's, foreign policy it's, moving forward? It's always, yeah, look, it's always funny when these debates happen that people sort of say US prestige as if somehow anyone who lives in vast parts of the world thinks there is any prestige to actually save. I mean, you know, if anyone who spends any time in the Middle East in vast parts of Africa, yes, there are, of course, some people who admire the US and want to spend time there and love Hollywood movies and Netflix. Okay, sure. But if you spend time in, I don't know, Palestine, vast parts of the Middle East and elsewhere, there's no question of prestige. I mean, the US, even putting aside before 9-11, but since 9-11, has been droning, uh, torturing, invading, arming, occupying countless countries around the world. So this idea somehow that U.S. prestige is impacted, there's no doubt that I think it shows that the U.S. as an imperial power is in decline, which is something I very much welcome. We are moving towards a multipolar world where various other major powers, particularly China and Russia, have influence, not because I idealise those countries. Their regimes are dictatorial and brutal, so I'm not idealising them at all. But I think the idea of a one-country superpower world is never a healthy thing. And the idea that, yes, Joe Biden was the one as US president who oversaw the withdrawal, it wouldn't have made much difference had it been Trump mm. or Obama, frankly, or whoever else would have been US president. The issue of US image or prestige, yes, it was a very visual idea to show the Afghan government falling and the Taliban taking over. But from anyone who knows anything about U.S. foreign policy, the U.S.'s role in the world has been declining for at least a decade and a half. Andy Lowenstein is author of Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe, and uh, there's more journalism on the way regarding the Afghanistan war. Thanks very much for joining us, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Triple R. Great pastors, lockdown Dr. Jen joins us for what we affectionately term weird science. Morning, Dr. Jen. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah, I don't know if the science that I choose to talk about is often quite weird enough, is it? Maybe I need to be weirder. 
What a wacky science. Oh, yeah, God. No, being don't be weird weird possibly professor. isn't my strength. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Let's stick to what we got. Flubber. <laughs> but, um, anyway. but, team, I've got some very important questions for you this morning. Mm-hmm. So I need some yeses or nos or sometimes. Um, have you been feeling forgetful? Had, Always. Jen, here's a question for you. Did you listen to the first hour of the show today? <laughs> I know, but I just want to have it on the record. I know. Oh, well, it's on the record. Everyone can go back and listen to Sarah trying to speak from 6 or 7 a.m. today, and that would answer that question. But, yes, I have been. <laughs> yeah, Come on. I think, I think everyone needs to give each other the benefit of the doubt at the moment, Sarah. It's <laughs> all um, feeling, feeling a bit vague? Oh, my God. I, I do a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah often. Finding it, finding it hard to concentrate? Yes. Always. <laughs> Um, finding it harder to make decisions. Yes, that is a yes. I think from everyone's pause, that might have answered that one for you. Yeah. I feel like I feel like none of you could make a decision to answer. Yeah, that, that was hard. You can make decisions. Yeah. In my mind, I was going yeah, 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 but nothing came out. So yeah, it's a yes. That was like the best soundbite ever. <laughs> Um, what about having trouble with your memory, feeling like you don't know what lockdown it is, what month it is? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Daniel, I, think I, think Daniel's, uh, I think Daniel's having some – he's crying in the corner at the moment. <laughs> a traumatic moment, yeah. It's like a therapy session for him. Speak, speak to me, Daniel. Speak to me, my friend. Well, it's hard to know if it's the lockdown or if it's just <laughs> genuine, general decline. But, yeah, of course. <laughs> Because you're so old, Daniel. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, I don't know. It's we're all going through something, uh, but I also, you know, I don't want to use it as a crutch. Well, what would be wrong with using it as a crutch? I'm about to tell you the science behind all of this, so please crutch away. Well, I, you don't want to waste two years of your life. I mean, that's what I feel like. We've all we've all been <laughs> too put late. On pause. Yeah, it is too late. <laughs> mm. Uh, yeah, I think I think that that ship sailed okay. well and truly. All right, but 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 my last <laughs> question for you all is: Have you been using the term brain fog to describe all of these things? Never. No. Okay. Interesting. Daniel, your response? Or are you still trying to make it? No, no. I'm <laughs> trying to wade through the fog. By the looks well, of we, it. brain fog is what happens outside of lockdowns and restrictions and pandemics. I felt. I mean, yeah, it's brain fog describes it accurately. But I've used we've used the term before. We even heard of COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, brain fog. I mean, the term fog obviously is a weather term, and it's been used since the since the 16th century. But the the first use of the term fog relating to to our brains also goes back a really long way. I think it was found first in an American newspaper in 1853, but it's only been in common use since about the 1990s when it was commonly used uh, to describe people's experiences of chronic fatigue syndrome. But it's used, it's been used hugely, you know, far more often in the last 18 months and I think for a lot of people it describes what we're feeling this sense of kind of vagueness fairly hazy I can't really kind of recall with any real clarity what's going on and but of course it's it's, it isn't a medical term if anyone's wondering even though you see it all over the media it's not a medical term but I think we all have this sense that our brains aren't quite functioning like they used to. And I've heard lots of people at my work say, well, t- 2019 me could have done this in half the time, but 2021 me just can't get can't meet that deadline. I'm sorry. Mm. 
because we're just not kind of functioning like we used to. And if you talk to a neuroscientist about it, they'll say that it's um, incredibly normal. It's absolutely to be expected that we're feeling this way because we've effectively all experienced trauma over the last 18 months. And not only is it to be expected, but it's also scientifically really interesting because although we've known for at least 100 years that when people become stressed or anxious or depressed or undergo any type of trauma, our thinking processes, our cognition becomes impaired, but it actually hasn't been studied that often. And the lockdowns have provided really interesting opportunities to study what happens to us when we experience this kind of collective traumatic event. So it's normal, guys, and it's scientifically interesting. So yay, science, yeah? Hmm. It's positive. (laughs) (laughs) Have I convinced you? Truly, yeah. So what are, what are you trying to convince us of that our brain fog is for the better? Is positive? Is positive because because <laughs> we're subjects? It's scientific? <laughs> yeah. yeah, because it's it's scientifically interesting, and you guys know I'm I'm on team science yeah. all the way. <laughs> now I guess I just want to normalise for everyone that the way we're mm. feeling this vagueness is entirely to be expected. Um, and I mean there haven't been a lot of studies yet. I know of one in Italy and one in Scotland, and it was very true that I mean obviously people or also experiencing brain fog as a symptom of COVID itself. But aside from that, it's been clearly shown that people experiencing lockdowns, especially long lockdowns like we've had in Melbourne, it's normal that our brains don't continue to function as well. Um, In Scotland, they tested people on a whole lot of cognitive tasks during lockdown and then in the following summer when they weren't in lockdown and people weren't living with restrictions and they performed completely differently. So what you're experiencing is to be expected. And there's a whole lot of good reasons for it. So the first is, of course, stress. We're all under stress. There's lots of uncertainty. We don't know what's happening. We don't know when lockdown's ending. We wait to hear the numbers. And when our brains experience stress, our brains talk to our immune systems and our hormone systems, and a whole lot of you know responses happen in our bodies. So, for example, your adrenal glands, which just sit on top of your kidneys, when you're stressed, they release a hormone called cortisol into your bloodstream. And cortisol has a lot of different effects on us, including interfering with our brains making new brain cells. So, you know, your brain's not able to make all the new brain cells that it needs. And cortisol lowers your attention, it lowers your ability to concentrate, it interferes with your memory. So 18 months of higher cortisol levels, it's a wonder we're actually managing to get through the day, I reckon. Yeah. I was thinking about long covid uh, because what you're describing, you say that, yeah, it might even be a, an effect or a – did you touch on that? I mean, this is an example of brain fog in motion. But, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brain fog is considered to be part of long COVID. For mm. sure. And I'm more worried about that than, you know, COVID. they throw they throw your, your erectile dysfunctions and everything at you. But it's the <laughs> – Gee, I haven't had that thrown at me. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't land very well. Uh, but, yeah, the brain fog is really scary. Oh, I totally agree because if this sense of haziness and not being able to think straight is going to last for a long time, mm. that sounds really scary because, I mean, that's one thing, right? I think that there's other things that are specific to lockdown that make sense to us. So we've talked before about the fact that in lockdown you don't have a lot of variety in your days. Every day feels very similar to the others and that means we feel like we're in a time warp because we're not doing very many distinct or very notable things. When we look back on a period of time, it just it all just feels like a blur. So, you know, which lockdown? are we in again and actually is it 2020 or 2021 and we sort of tend to forget that 
other than that little five days in February, we actually had nearly six months when we weren't in lockdown between November and the end of May this year. But it doesn't feel like that, does it? It just feels like we've kind of been in lockdown forever. But the interesting thing is that not having very many new or different or novel things happening in your life not only does it mean that we have this kind of sense of being in a time warp, but it also means we just basically stop paying attention. So from the moment, from before you were even born, you were primed to pay attention to changes. So, you know, babies look up when someone walks into the room or they hear a sound. For most of us, it feels like so long since someone new walked into any room we spend time in that we've just basically stopped paying attention. We're just completely sluggish. So that's why you're being told, you know, instead of the next Zoom meeting, go for a walk, take your phone and go for a walk or do work in a different room in your house or, you know, anything to break it up so that you start paying attention again because we've all just zoned out. Oh, God, we saw saw Rainbow the other day. It was like we got visited by aliens. I know. (laughs) You should have heard us in here <laughs> it's the simple things right? yeah definitely yeah, totally. also i've got an 18 month old i'm afraid we're like raising bad boy bubby okay you've got to stop referencing bad boy bubby no but bad once boy bubby once a week no it's everything's act, bad boy bubby. there's no other movie like it. that's true <laughs> you worried just like, we're giving toddlers brain fog yeah well are we giving toddlers brain fog I don't know. I mean, look, I don't know. I guess the, the point is that we're all experiencing a world very different to what we knew, but for the toddlers in your lives or the babies in your lives, this is kind of what they've known. So maybe they'll just have this huge awakening at some point, hopefully not too far down the track when we get to have something, you know, more resembling what we knew of as normal back in back in the dim, distant, good old days of 2019. Yeah, or May even. Yeah, or May. Just illuminating stuff. Dr. Jen, thanks so much for checking in. Enjoy your brain fog team. Let's all revel together in our inability to think straight. Triple R. Noticed over the last week, uh, just going on walks, that there's a few more magpies that are getting closer and closer as we're walking, um, especially yesterday. So uh, I, I was just I was walking home and I think the most terrifying sound, I'm not sure if you've been swooped by a magpie, is the sound of the wings just oh. going, and they were getting closer and closer. Thankfully, it was coming from behind. If it was coming from the front, I would just would have screamed and collapsed to the ground. Mm. Like, I just would have been horrendous. Um, and it just went straight past my head. And I just it kind of happened so quickly and unexpectedly that I didn't have a chance to react beforehand. Because normally I will, yeah, I'll, I'll react over the top um, beforehand. Uh, and, and I looked at Abby and I was just like, my God, was that close? And she's like, oh, my God, that was so close to your head. Um, and I had a look. So swooping season is September. So we're coming into September. So that's uh, normally when uh, they're having their babies. And uh, the um, it's when the chicks are just born and before they go out of the nest. That's when uh, the magpies are, are very protective. Um, they're more likely to attack if you are on a bike or if you're running. So thankfully, I'm just walking. But all the things that they tell you, not to do instinctively, like I absolutely would do. So um, if you're walking, uh, they say just to cover your face um, because generally it will come around your head, just the top of your head, but they're not looking to hurt you, just scare you away because they're obviously protecting their babies. Um, 
but don't wave your arms around, like swing your arms around, which is what I would automatically do. Um, don't run away. Like, Why don't swing your arms around? Because then you're aggravating the bird. Oh. Yeah. So if you if you just walk, just keep walking. Um, hey, there is no one in the history of time <laughs> who has been swooped by a magpie and has just kept their hands by their side and right. stared gently into the distance. I know. I know. I was reading this going, well, this is... I mean, this is good in theory, yeah. but who is actually going to be doing just this? Just leave your hands in your pockets. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it did say to cover, just so cover your eyes, like just say the sun, like you're blocking the sun, just to cover in case they do actually Birdman said to your... try to get to know the magpies. Well, that's another thing as well. So you look yeah. at them and go, hello. Yeah. Um, it did say in this article that uh, because they do recognise people, yeah. um, if you're nicer to them throughout the year, like if you feed them, then come swooping season, they won't... They won't they bother you. you. Yeah. Um, but don't try to feed them during swooping season. Okay. So, yeah, probably should have, should have done it. I just way. resent getting swooped. I think it's I, – I hate it. I, I mean, yeah. obviously everyone hates it, but I, I'm like, I'm not attacking you stupid babies. <laughs> like, I'm nowhere near them. Calm down. Honestly, you're provoking me. Like, <laughs> if, if you want a peaceful next five minutes, why don't you – Piss back off into your freaking tree and leave me alone. I've done nothing to you. God. Okay. If there's ever been a moment on air where someone has been broken by the pandemic, it was Daniel Burr revealing, oh. revealing his deep, his deep. His, Deep hatred of magpies. Oh, don't worry. Oh, really? <laughs> I really want to go on, on a walk with you now. Oh my god! Um, I, we know I get sweet more often now because they hate Ralph. Oh, so because he's, right. he's a big kind of black dog, so I assume he kind of looks panther-like. Yeah. I don't know, but they don't come for me. They come for Ralph, who's oh. totally oblivious to them most of the time, but it god. freaks the hell out of me. Yeah, because uh, you'll get multiple birds swooping him at once, and I don't know what to do about it. Like it's made us a target, and I. Uh, and because I'm taking June on these bird walks, at the moment, all birds are beautiful and lovely. So, like, yesterday we were around wattle birds, which also swoop, and maggies and crows, and we were talking. I was like, oh, look at the maggies and the crows, and they're all and the wattle birds were all kind of swooping above us. Mm. And I thought there's probably going to be a point where I'm going to have to protect her from these birds, but I don't want to. I don't want to create that level of fear in her. Yeah. So I don't know how to keep it together in front of her when swooping season hits and mm. these birds go from our little friends that we talk to every night to maniacs. Well, hopefully they leave her alone. Just I mean, did Birdman also say they've got a memory of like two or 300 and so once, like magpies, once they see more than that, then they start putting people into categories, which is why... Um, some women are attacked more than others because they look like the teenage boys in <laughs> yeah. physique that are giving them grief. Yeah. Uh, so funny. And so, so, but June, hopefully she's too small for them to pair. Uh, but the dog, yeah. I'm so, it's, oh God, ignorance is bliss. Oh, it? no. Ralph yeah, has no definitely. idea. It's me. I, sometimes I'm walking him, waving a stick above his head. Uh, for him, but he's got no idea. He just doesn't care. And it's the stick to so they think you're a tree. Oh, the stick is oh, just a stupid magpies. Honestly, we all know. But seriously, if they think you're a tree because you've got a stick above your head, me and Ralph stand there pretending to be a tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we, that's how our walks go these days. That's just a 
bloody get them away. Yeah. Which is you're probably not meant to do either. It's no. It's aggravating because apparently. I've now found out. <laughs> um, but we used to. when I pretend you're a tree. <laughs> but why? Don't they, they, don't they, they make you hold a stick above your head, don't yeah, they? Yeah, that's what I do. But I didn't know it was to pretend to be a tree. I don't know that that's something, is it? That's it is. Yeah. Well, it's if it's not something, it's an old wives' tale. <laughs> it's an old wives' tale. We both know. I'm gonna, that's yeah. That'd be interesting. I, I used to work at a gym, and there was um, on your entrance from the car park to the entrance, um, there was this one magpie that was just swooping everyone. And this mm. one lady came in um, and it hit her in like in her temple, so she was bleeding. Oh, right. Oh, she she came in and I was just like, oh my god, are you okay? Three people we had to stitch up in one way, not stitch up. We just had to put a band aid, but they were bleeding in the face area. She came again and she got attacked again, like a, a, a couple of days later. I'm like, oh, she had one I of those faces. Something about. I was like, if you want yeah. to cancel your membership, no questions asked. Cancel wow. because who wants to deal with this? Magpies are sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was just like, is that magpies playing chicken? And I don't mean to be funny necessarily, but is that like if they because you say they're just trying to scare you and not make contact? Yeah, well, supposedly it's less than ten percent that actually hit you, or actually it's less than ten percent that actually try to swoop you. Mm. So um, that's they're, they're accidentally. You're saying that they're, they're accidentally hitting you. They're kind of going down, and they don't mean to. Okay. This one though was hitting multiple people all week. Like, so, and when I was yeah, so I reckon there's some go rogue, and they're the ones that Daniel could can take his anger out on. But I think that. Uh, <laughs> When I was a kid, there was an urban, I don't know if it was an urban legend, but my my brother and sister told me there was an angry magpie in the area who had broken its beak off in someone's head oh my when God. they were riding with a stack hat on. Oh, my Remember God. stack hats oh had no, holes and it pecked and got its beak broke off. Now, that was enough to terrify me for life as a child of magpies, which I feel bad for the Maggies, but mm. surely that's not true. Surely a bird can't break its beak off in yet stack hat. So you there's a weathered so. – the reason why the magpies are angry is because they had no beak. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. They seem to think that the, the magpie survived having its beak snapped off anyway. God, I love that story so much. Isn't it? It's such a Horace child. I'll tell you what, I, I remember the, playing – I don't know what we're doing, <laughs> PE or whatever. There was a mother there and I was wearing an orange – Phoenix Suns, what was their colour? Orange and purple. Orange and purple. And uh, I don't know, magpies okay. like that stupid colour. Like they like sticks. Oh and um and so, anyway, it was swooping. It was swooping my hat, and this mother took it off. Uh, and I don't know what she threw the hat away, or another kid was wearing a hat. And anyway, it was swooping this hat. Anyway, she shoved it under a uh, jumper. But the magpie remembered, or you know, has a object permanency, is fine with it. <laughs> knows that the anyway because swoop- they are smart, Daniel. They're not <laughs> as stupid as you think they are. It was swooping her guts, and I oh. I want to thank her. It was swooping her guts. I can't believe she sacrificed her. For me. I wouldn't do that for a child. Really? I know. I'm thinking about I that. I want to do it for Daniel A Bird. strange child. <laughs> <laughs> Who's grown up to loathe everything. I know. Yeah, that worked out. Woo! <laughs> <sighs> That's right. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>